Hello, this is Script Lock, where we talk about storytelling and video games. I'm Max Folkman. And I'm Nick Folkman. Today we have Gregory Loudon and Avi Coronen joining us. And Gregory is the narrative and cinematic director at Housemark, where he worked on Returnal. He also wrote and directed Stone and the upcoming Burn for Convict Games, which he's the co-founder, CEO, and director of. And previously, he was a senior narrative designer at Remedy Entertainment on Control and a narrative designer on Quantum Break. Aevi is a senior narrative designer at Housemark, and some of her credits include being a narrative designer on Returnal, a narrative designer on Control, Quantum Break, and Crossfire X at Remedy Entertainment, and a product manager on Kingsbridge at Wooga. Thank you two for both coming on today. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having us. Really excited to chat with you both. Hell yeah. And before I forget, because we always forget it, uh, the comments we make on this podcast are our own and in no way reflect the views of Insomniac Games, Sony, or Sony Interactive Entertainment. But with our first question, we'll just go with, how did both of you break into video games? Sure, yeah, I can go first. So, um, yeah, I have a bit of a long long journey, like everyone, but I can break it down. So I, um, I'm not actually finished, despite living in Helsinki and working on a lot of big recent Finnish games. Um, I'm actually from Sydney, Australia originally, so yeah, I uh, grew up in Australia and bumped a bit around the rest of the world and studied computer science at a uh, university and basically was always really passionate about games and I was pretty driven that, yeah, I want to make games, but in Australia at the time there weren't that many opportunities, so I ended up uh, shifting into film VFX. So I worked as a uh, originally doing some tools programming, and then I shifted doing uh, visual effects. So I worked on movies like Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Kahul, um, Sucker Punch, and Happy Feet 2. And from there, I actually uh, met some people and they said, would I want to work on the Untitled Alien Project, which turned out to be Prometheus. So I moved to London, worked on Prometheus and uh, World War Z. And then I heard about another big sci-fi film, visual effects-wise, moving around London called Gravity, and I worked on Gravity. So at that point, I felt like I'd worked on a lot of really special big films that I cared about, and I felt like I was really good at my craft in visual effects, but I decided um, I'm in Europe now. Why not try games? So I basically pivoted from uh, the film VFX area, which I loved and still use a lot of the same processes, uh, to be honest, and shifted into games. And as you shared... Um, was really proud and um, amazed to be working in the Nordic gaming scene. I've always loved Nordic games, like obviously Remedy games, like um, Max Payne and Alan Wake and Control. Obviously, that's the games they did after. But when I joined, it was Alan Wake and Max Payne. There was nothing else planned. Um, and from there, basically joined and started working in storytelling there. And eventually, um, during that period, I uh, learned so much about storytelling from the amazing narrative team there and shifted and decided that I actually wanted to create my own company. So I created Convict Games. And if you're looking for interactive stories uh, with interesting premises and a bit of an art house style, then I recommend you see that. But at that point, um, I also had a bit of a craving and also wanted to keep working in bigger games. So hence, I joined uh, Housemark and uh, at that point joined Returnal and uh, incredibly proud of what we did with Returnal. So really looking forward to chatting with you both more about it. But that's my long-winded uh, answer. So film, Sydney, uh, London, Finland, and film, and then uh, into story and into games. So, yeah. That's awesome. How easy was it to transition to another industry? 
Well, for me, actually, it was it was relatively easy because um, the reason I was hired at Remedy at the time was that they wanted to do like bigger sort of Hollywood VFX, and I'd worked on Prometheus, and Gravity wasn't out yet, so they didn't know about it, but I knew that was going to be very special. So I originally joined as a level designer and almost like a FX artist. But as I joined, I started to be really interested in the storytelling area of games and gradually just began to shift all the way over until you go today into being a narrative director. So I think I kind of connected the industries through my expertise, but then I grew my expertise within the games industry and eventually um, found the story part of it and loved it and basically just really worked on it and worked really hard to be, be where I am now and just try to be the best storyteller I can. But yeah, pretty easy for me because I could just take the VFX part and connect it with the VFX part. Cool. As far as I know, Greg was the original narrative designer, the first narrative designer on any Remedy game. Like before that, it was just writers and designers, and there was no one kind of like in between. But as far as I know, like Quantum Break and Greg, that was the first time like the title narrative designer was used in there. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the original thing where it was a bit more split up. And then uh, there was this idea about trying to bridge the gap and trying to tell stories in a bigger way. And Quantum Break was a really really big project of wanting to do both an interactive media television show along with a big action game and all the connections and your choices have impacts and all those other things so yeah it was really cool to help see that and yeah really looking forward to what's next on that side um at remedy were there growing pains with trying to figure out like the first narrative design role at the studio uh yes yes and no i feel like a kind of um i think like any job you do i kind of built up built it up around myself so i kind of found out what i was doing and what i wasn't doing and then kind of um built it as we were going forward so where i noticed my strengths were and where my other things weren't i could just adapt it that way but um yeah no it wasn't wasn't too difficult i think it was it was more of a thing that other people just recognized that hang on greg's doing a lot more of story stuff and still doing level design but um yeah kind of transitioned whereas here at housemark it's been very clear from the get-go that we will have a narrative team and we can get more into it, but Returnal's the first game with like a strong narrative driving through it. So um, it was a bit different in that sense. But same idea, I think Evie and I kind of built our spot and uh, created up our own restrictions to kind of allow us to do our jobs really well. Sweet. And this is my last question before I get to you, Evie, but Gregory, you said that you still use some of the same processes you're using for VFX in your games Mm -hmm. work now. Like, what are those processes? Yeah, I think it's like an attention to detail. Um, I think it's also about trying to communicate as much as you can visually. Obviously, working in visual effects, that was the key role. It was about telling a story within shots, very specifically, so between in between edits and cuts. So I think it was about a bit of a perfectionism, wanting to do really good um, visuals, and also understanding the power of that and how you can tell a lot um, I think as well, being a cinematic director, it's been good for me interacting with different uh, groups and particularly going through that process, both in animated features and live action films. So I feel like I can easily navigate that space as well. So yeah, I think it's a variety of things, but I'd say it's kind of the attention to detail, the power of the image, and then just the general lingo and experience you get from doing those sort of things. So when you need to direct others, you've been in their shoes, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Totally. And Avi, how did you break into games? Uh, well, my tale is also long and uh, windy. Uh, so I originally went to university to study English translation. Um, 
I was kind of like always interested in languages and stories or kind of like at that point I thought it was more about languages than the kind of like you know what the languages enable us to do and I studied I studied English translation and part of that was to go abroad uh, for a semester and I got into London South Bank University and because I was already studying in England they didn't really care what I studied so I looked at the course uh, kind of like list and I noticed that there was this course called games game cultures and I thought like I love games like you know I want to go and check out what what is this all about and then I went to London and I just had the biggest uh, eureka moment of my life like I finally realized that I can make games and I'm pretty good at it and it was just it was just one of those light bulb moments because before that I thought like you know maybe games are just kind of like growing on trees in Japan because kind of like mainstream media wasn't yet at that point where we kind of like collectively were aware how games get made where they get made who makes them uh so so that was kind of like a revelation I stayed a little bit longer in London than I intended to uh for another semester with my own money uh because I just wanted to learn a bit more but eventually I came back to Finland I did finish my initial degree but I then I immediately went and got a second degree in media uh in the Tampere Applied University of Applied Sciences so it was more hands-on and I immediately uh basically went and took all my courses and like uh just bent the coursework into making games as much as I could anything that I could make into a game I would I would start volunteering uh for IGDA local chapters I would kind of like run events I would just do everything and anything uh, to learn more and work with others and kind of like get more of that experience and I only stayed kind of like uh on site studying for about year and a half uh because there was another compulsory unit to that degree and that was an international internship uh so I kind of like connected with a lot of people kind of like um you know grew my network and I've managed to get to know this uh kind of like Scottish person who connected me with some of the companies in Dundee where I was kind of like aiming to do my internship at and he basically recommended me to a couple of local companies and based on a phone interview I was hired as a kind of like production assistant uh to Denki which is this kind of small uh company with a cult like following they did a lot of kind of like um uh GBA games uh then they transitioned to doing like digital TV games for a bit and then when I was there uh they were working on kind of like transitioning into mobile and publishing uh their wonderful word strategy game called Coral on XBLA and I was there like that was my first job uh first internship and it was just a very small indie company and i just got to see like how a company is run from like very close range and it was it was a wonderful wonderful company i i still value everything that i learned there and uh the connections that i made there and then i basically uh moved to from there uh to berlin and there i joined uh wuga as you mentioned and yeah that was i was there for the height and fall of facebook games for that brief period when we were all getting spammed on Facebook with those like help me build this thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I was working on Kingsbridge and that was actually where I first got my kind of like little bit of touch into narrative design. I started as a junior product manager, which was there basically anything between a producer and a game designer. It was all just rolled into one role. And I did feature design, uh but we were also looking into kind of like Kingsbridge was this kind of like clash of clans 
type of game before Clash of Clans came and just, you know, devoured the competition. And we were looking to build a single player campaign and we didn't have a writer. And then one day my lead pulls me aside like, hey, Evie, do you want to do the campaign? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I, I wrote the characters, I wrote the script, I designed all the levels for the single player campaign. And I'm just so sad that I never saved any of that because, of course, the game has oh, been no. sunset long time ago. There's like maybe a couple of screenshots left uh, on the internet. But yeah, uh, pretty pretty miffed about that one. But yeah, I, I was kind of proud of it. Like, um, I didn't, I didn't remember to collect like also feedback. Like, how how was it received? But I, as my first kind of like story ever, I didn't think it was like too bad. Of course, if I probably read it now, I would. Maybe it's a good thing that it wasn't saved. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Um, but yeah, and then after that, I came back to Finland. I did a couple of uh, shorter stints at like a couple of indie game studios. Uh, still working on the mobile game side uh, when I heard that there was an opening at Remedy Games. And there was a brief weird period when Remedy was working on mobile games. And I got in uh, during that window. And yeah, basically they actually put out one mobile game. Very few people kind of like recognize it, but Agents of Storms. Uh, Agent of Storm? Some Agents of Storm. Yeah, Agents of Storm. Uh, but yeah, they put out that one. I wasn't on that. I was on the following projects, none of which saw the light of day. And kind of like when it was finally figured out, like uh, maybe this mobile thing isn't for us. Um, the kind of like team was shuttered down and we were all moved to help ship Quantum Break. And that's how I kind of like got my secret lateral shift from mobile games to AAA. And yeah, I was there for the last four months of Quantum Break, helping helping ship it. And then after that, I was kind of like, an, okay, I'm in AAA and it, now what? And I tried my hand at level design a little bit. Didn't didn't work out for me. It wasn't my jam. And then I was moved on to do feature design on Control. And I, I was really happy with it. But I think people noticed that every time I wrote a feature spec, I would just kind of like write quite a lot about like narratively. Like, oh, and this feature could be like this. And then it could like show up like this in the world. And then I think uh, at one point, they just noticed that and pulled me aside, like, "Hey, Evie, do you want to do like narrative design?" And I was like, "Yes!" Like, I didn't know there was a word for the things that I wanted to do. And then, then that was like the second light bulb moment in my career. And yeah, I was I was doing narrative design on Control, and I I I love that project to death. Like, it's it's exactly my jam. Like, weird uh, female protagonist, um, just all my jams right there. And then I got the opportunity to also join Housemark and do another game that is weird, a little bit horror, female protagonist, and yeah. And that's how I'm here today. That's awesome. What did they teach you for game cultures in London? It was a little bit of a like mishmash of everything. There was some more kind of like academic units, and then there was where we were learning 3D um, art, uh, there was one where we had to write a pitch. Like it was just a little bit of everything. One of those hodgepodge uh, courses, and yeah, I think we had like twenty-five students there, but I think many of them dropped on the way. It was it was one of those kind of like catch-all courses that then seemed to kind of like uh, cause people to just drop out uh, as as they went on. Yeah. But yeah, I I still loved it because it was my first. Uh, first touch into kind of like games and kind of like the inside of making games and like talking critically about games. Cool. 
And were you always aiming to get in narrative when you were getting into games or were you open to trying everything else? Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know I wanted to work in narrative until it kind of like happened to me or I wanted to work on narrative driven games. I just kind of like didn't at that point care like what I was doing on it. So Remedy was kind of like a dream come true because it was the big like narrative powerhouse in Finland. And I thought like maybe I'll get there once I'm like, you know, I have tens of years of experience and then I got in with I think I had like three years of experience under my belt. So I was like, I could not believe that I was there. And I was I was for the longest time tossing between do I want to be a game designer or do I want to be a producer? And then it just turned out that game design was what I was kind of like naturally more inclined towards, like just problem solving, trying to figure out all the edge cases, figuring out like is this going to work or not before you start building it properly. And then kind of like it was just kind of like maybe my language bent my love for stories that it kind of like always took that form of like, well, how how does this mechanic work in the world? How does it speak to the story? How could it further and enhance the story? And yeah, narrative design just wasn't really talked about when I started in the in the industry. And then it just suddenly bloomed out of somewhere uh, while I was working working at Remedy. And Greg just kind of like we, because we were working uh, on Quantum Break a, a little bit, and then on Crossfire and Control, and kind of like Greg gave me the first template of what narrative design could be. But I also kind of found that it's it's very much dependent on what your lens, your previous experience is. As Greg mentioned, you build it around yourself. And kind of like mine was maybe more focused on world building and kind of like um, words and languages, kind of like text, text-based content. So I'm very much coming from that angle. And of course, game design. Like I love finding those moments where story and the mechanics intersect and like make each other better. Narrative design is usually a different, is usually defined differently at each studio. So, is it different is it compared to Remedy and Housemark? Do they have different definitions for what narrative designer does? Yeah, I, I think it's like different every project, uh, whatever the project needs. Uh, so, like my definite niche is like uh, world building and text, uh, but I've kind of like seen, uh, well, Greg definitely has more the kind of like visual angle. And then uh, Brooke Mags, who I worked with uh, at Remedy, she also had, I think, more like a literary background. So she was kind of like a lot more into plot and characters and roles and kind of like arcs. While I, I was just kind of like more interested in tinkering with like, what are things called? Uh, what, 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 is, what is this uh, thing called in the universe? Like, how do people talk about it in, inside the world? Uh, what, what is this kind of like, what can, how can we write this description so it's like, little bit mysterious and a little bit evocative and i think that bit that i did in control i think very neatly translated into what i did also on returnal so i did a lot of the world building i did a lot of the background research for a lot of the greek mythology stuff that you might notice in returnal and i did a lot of the um kind of like text content that was outside the cinematics and the kind of like very specific story sequences um so, for example, the xenoglyphs, which are the alien writings that you translate, and that that was, I think, one of my favorite babies because translation is still uh, close to my heart. Uh, that that was one of the things, uh, one of the features that I kind of like shepherded throughout the production all the way to the end. That's a good transition then to talking more about Returnal. Then, so Housemark had never made a horror game or one that was as story driven as Returnal before. Were there any growing pains with trying something so different? 
Yeah, I can I can take this one, Evian. Feel free to jump in. So, um, yeah, uh, in general, I think uh, because Evian and I had some experience, we could kind of at least guide uh, the team and the company towards means to tell the story the best way. But in general, we were a relatively small team. I think we had four people total internally at Housemark to do quite an ambitious thing. But I do think because we'd both had experience doing this before, we were able to kind of level up and kind of avoid some maybe uh, small small issues. But I would say as well with Returnal, um, when Evie and I joined, Harry Kruger, who was the game director, had a very, I think, clear uh, vision of what the game could be. And then for... Evie and I was about just aligning, syncing, and working with uh, our whole narrative team to basically develop it bit by bit. But um, to me, when I look at project, it's a, it usually starts from a bit of like a, a breakdown, which is maybe more of a film way of just like, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do it within the window? What sort of stuff do we need to do? So in terms of growing pains, I think it was an ambitious game, and we did, we did want to do a lot of stuff. As Evie said, we have translation, we have audio logs. Uh, we also have like uh, a really sort of mysterious plot that we want to tell. So it was a very ambitious game. But I think for everyone who was involved, we're all so excited by it and the potential of it. So I'd say, yeah, there was a little bit, but it was more or less we were able to kind of build on our experience to pull it off. But Evie, how do you feel about it? Um, yeah, I agree with all those points. And I think uh, because we knew that this was the first time we were building kind of like a very ambitious narrative uh into a housemark game that we wanted to kind of like do it in a smart way so we kind of like started out imagining the story in a way that kind of like would be uh well not maybe uh cost effective but kind of like you know let's not do the things that we don't have kind of like you know internal pipelines for so let's kind of like you know just limit the amount of cinematics to a minimum let's try to do visual storytelling and kind of like embrace a lot of the strengths that Housemark has, like we used a particle technology to create these like beautiful hologram statues that were left behind by the alien civilization. So we, we kind of like tried to leverage the strengths that Housemark had and also kind of like do as little work uh, with the kind of like um, areas that we didn't know that we knew that we didn't have kind of like a very strong established pipeline for. Yeah, I would say as well, it was really important for us to kind of think of like, what is Housemark storytelling as we got to deliver ourselves on the world stage with PlayStation Studios and also establish Housemark. So for us, it was as much about trying to create a unique voice in storytelling and trying to create something that's innovative and ideally story-wise, it feels quite unconventional. At least that was what uh, Harry and Avi and I spoke about quite a lot, was we wanted to create a bit of an unconventional story and also wanted to challenge the player in terms of the narrative, the same way that the gameplay would challenge the player. So I think we had a quite a holistic goal of what we wanted to do. And then as Evie said, it was about breaking down and looking at our strengths and um, kind of embracing some of the house smart culture, like easy to pick up, hard to master. That applies to both our gameplay, I feel, and also the story of Returnal. Uh, doing layered gameplay at house smart, it's so much about having quite layered gameplay that it's very easy to begin to play on the surface level. But as you embrace and you get better, you can be an expert. So we tried to take a lot of this like housemark philosophy and then embed it. Um, another big thing we chat a lot about at housemark is flow. So flow in a sense of when you're lost in the moment. And for us, it's really important with the storytelling and with the cinematics and everything that you're always in the zone. So you're listening to Celine from a different from a different life. She may have died hundreds of times on Atropos, and you're listening to a log from her then. 
So we wanted to kind of live up to all these different aspects of what makes Housemark games special and then almost parallel track it with a really uh, well-told, um, ambitious and like unconventional story as well. How did you figure out if you were challenging the player too much or not enough with your story? Like, did you rely on playtests a lot? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about Returnal and also the story of when it was developed was during uh, COVID-19. So uh, as a result, actually, um, getting as much playtesting otherwise was was quite challenging in that sense. But I think a lot of it was based off experience and gut to kind of really understand, like, um, what are we doing and what are we not? And I think quite usually uh, lots of kind of discussions and those sort of things. But I think it would have been amazing to have more of that thing. But we were, uh, I think, because of the circumstances, like everyone in the world, uh, splintered, working remotely, going through this process. But of course, we did use the, our great team and uh, a lot of the time they gave us good feedback. But I think we were also quite confident with what we wanted to tell. Um, probably won't go into spoilers uh, with Returnal because I don't know if uh, your listeners have uh, played it, of course. But nonetheless, we had a very clear idea from the beginning of the project what we wanted to tell with the story and like the beginning, middle and end. And it was just about staying true to that and uh, not compromising the ending for players so they could a bit like Celine, like piece together the puzzle bit by bit, layer by layer, and discover it. So, yeah, not as heavily um, playtest driven as uh, maybe it could have been, but definitely we did lots of te- uh, as much testing as we could. And uh, I also took the opportunity to get in various friends after signing all the NDAs and everything, of course, for secrecy, but to get their perspectives as well to help us make sure we told the best story possible, despite the circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I think what helped us was the kind of like vision and the genre that it's like Returnal is a mix of genres. Like it starts out as this kind of like seemingly grounded sci-fi story. And it has like, I think, a lot of strong sci-fi foundations. But then on top of that, we layer the psychological thriller of kind of like Celine's past and finding out uh, what's what's happened with her. What kind of baggage might she be bringing onto this planet? And then kind of like a, also a heavy dash of both cosmic horror and Greek mythology to create this little bit of dreamlike um, space and story. And one of the big directions that we kind of like got from Harry was that kind of like aim to haunt the player. And for that, I think it was very important that we don't answer uh, the questions that we kind of like raise with the game or we don't answer all of them in a way that's like 100% clear and canon and there's one one true meaning, one true kind of like way of reading the story. So kind of like this ambiguity was quite central to the story. So even if kind of like not everyone understood it or not everyone understood it the same way, that wasn't kind of like a fail state for the narrative. It was quite important that we would have that moment where after finishing the game, the players would go on forums and YouTube and just kind of like argue, what, what did all of that mean? Uh, was it real? Was it not real? Um, what happened? What did it all mean? Like that, that was quite uh, like a central goal that we wanted to achieve with the narrative. I'm jealous. I wish more games were allowed to be more ambiguous with their storytelling, but it mm-hmm. seems like it's always a hard sell for a lot of companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like really happy that Sony allowed us to tell this really dark and quite like at times maybe even you could call it confusing story. And I, at some points, I remember being in meetings like, are they really letting us do this? Wow, like they really trust us. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think as well, it's just it really connected with the goals, and I think everyone really bought into the idea of this overall vision of the game that it's okay, the game is about this, and I think that means that it's well told because that was kind of the goal of it was this is what we set out to do. I think it was also about asking like, what does haunting mean? Obviously, there's the like, there's the horror aspects, which for us I think we're always quite clear that we wanted to position ourselves more as a thriller, but despite that, haunting is when you can't figure something out. Haunting is when it stays with you, and hopefully if you've played Returnal, you have the same idea where you want answers, and the, the mystery of the game is you may not ever get them. So, yeah, it was a really amazing project to be a part of, and like I said, really brave and really bold and um, really ambitious, and I think for myself when I joined, yeah, I was so happy to see this sort of framework and then just dig in and deepen it and really begin to iterate and find the ways to tell the story in unique ways and find ways to challenge storytelling. Uh, as an interactive medium, so not just looking at how other mediums do it, but how can we tell a special story in Returnal that could only be told through the medium of games, and that's what we really wanted to do as well as a team, whilst also defining this housemark uh, image and like perspective on storytelling as well. Right. And sound plays a huge part in Returnal, more so than Housemark's previous games, both in setting the mood and getting into the main character's headspace. Can both of you talk about the relationship between narrative and audio on the project? Well, this is definitely more uh, Greg's wheelhouse since he kind of like adopted the audio team during the production. So I think I'll let Greg answer this one. Yeah. Yeah. I think as, as Evie said, for me, I'm like, I'm a really strong believer of like, there's three sort of central ways to tell a story. There's the narrative design, which obviously you're chatting with Evie and I, and we have those mechanics that includes voiceover, cinematics, um, other general mechanics in there as well. And then you go into production design, which I think others can call environmental storytelling. But to me, it's more than that. It's what Evie said. It's the items. It's the uh, the look of things. It's the the deeper layers of the story that we're trying to tell through every item. So you could say that's more the art side. And then finally, there's the sound design, which goes into uh, literally sound design, but to me also music. And in this new era of uh, working on PlayStation 5, there's also the dual sense, which is traditionally more audio. So yeah, um, as Evie mentioned, I was incredibly close with the audio leads. We synced once a week because I think it's such a powerful way to tell the story in games overall. And I think it can be a bit uh, underestimated of what you can do. And uh, for us, as I said, it was always about flow and really looping the player in. So that's why you have stuff like rain pattering on the controller. And that's why uh, we really chose to work with a haunting composer, Bobby Krillick or Haxon Cloak, who also worked on Midsummer to do the music for Eternal to really give it this nightmarish sort of um, dreamlike ambience, as Evie's mentioning. And for the sound design, it was also a means for us, which, once again, not wanting to go into spoilers, but we tell a lot of story there. So I really recommend if you're interested in deciphering some of the sounds that we use, there's a lot of layers of the end of the game across the entire experience. So it was such a huge critical part, and I took it upon myself as a narrative director and being able to be multidisciplinary uh, to basically work with really talented people. In this case, Loic from uh, CSG, uh, Rob Blake, and some other really great uh, audio and sound designers, and the amazing team to pull it off. So huge part, and um, I think as well, working on a sci-fi game, it's such an interesting, amazing aspect because everything needs to be designed. And we also probably made it harder for ourselves that the only human things in a uh, uh, Returnal is Celine, her sidearm, the Astro sidearm, and the ship. 
everything else she encounters is alien. So with that regards, it was such a playground for the audio team. And then when you put on top of that the 3D audio, we knew from the beginning we wanted to do something very, very special with Returnal with this. So every cinematic was also about creating this physical experience of being with Celine and really linking you and getting you into flow. So having haptics hand uh, designed to match the cinematic, having the um, sound whirl around you in 3D as you're going through and crashing on Atropos with Celine was such an exciting part. And um, yeah, I'm such a huge believer in the power of audio. And um, that's something that we're definitely going to be continuing. Um, as we said, we're sort of establishing this new era of Housemark, and we're always going to be very heavily looking into the sound design as much as just the narrative design as well. That's great. And you both kind of touched on this before, but in like related to audio, Returnal story holds back a lot on purpose and does like leave a lot to audio. How do you negotiate the, li- the line between telling the players enough and not enough of what's going on in the story? Yeah, I can jump in and love to hear Evie as well. It feels like, um, at least with Returnal, something that we decided early on was we wanted it to be an experience of flow. and We didn't want to tell you how to feel. We wanted you to kind of just feel it with Celine. So we felt that having just like the voiceover kind of telling you how to feel, we didn't want to go down that path. We wanted you to be with Celine. So for example, when you first arrive and you find another version of yourself, you just sit with Celine in the rain. You feel the rain pattering on the dual sense. You hear the ambience around you in 3D audio. And Celine is just looking at this and she's thinking. And you as a player, you're thinking as well. We wanted to guide players through through the full aspects. On top of that, we also use the um, audio logs. And um, we wanted to tell multiple stories where basically we're feeding you different versions of Celine. Celines that have first arrived on Atropos and are still calling Astra for help. All the way to Celines that have lost hope and maybe become something quite horrible or something incredibly strange. So with that in mind with audio, it was about, um, at least for me, sort of, protecting the flow so with an audio log you can listen to it and it won't interrupt the gameplay it's not like we're going to take control and we're going to push you into those things we want it to be this entirely sort of immersive experience on like ps5 so at least that was a big thing the line of how much to tell and how little to tell um i think that was something that just took iteration um i do remember during development um i was playing through the full game and as I was playing through, I realized that, hey, like this, this story beat just isn't landing. And I realized, hey, we need to, we need to reinforce this. So there was some of that iteration and also trying to be very objective with the game and just quite brutal, just looking at it saying, hey, if I had zero information, would these logs that I have or would this story that's been revealed make it good and kind of working from there? So at least that was my perspective. So let audio not interrupt the, whole experience and then also just iterate and test and work out the slots that we have um we're also fortunate to work with an amazing um actor who i haven't talked about yet like jane perry who i think just gave this like tour de force like really visceral emotional performance and she is the core like she is the soul like her performance drives returnal and having her kind of narrate and having her provide all these different versions of herself it's like a full it's basically monologue the game if you think of returnal and i'm so happy with that so audio is incredibly critical but uh evie that was a long answer from me what do you what do you feel yeah there's i could talk about this i think for a full hour but yeah i think my kind of like earliest memories of uh, that have stayed with me from development was just kind of trying to put together a timeline 
of the events that are referenced in Returnal, you won't experience most of those. But I think it was kind of like quite important for the development team, or at least the narrative team, to kind of like understand of what has happened, kind of like you know, on the cosmic scale, planetary scale, and then kind of like on the scale of Celine's life, and then start to look at kind of like how those different layers affect one another, and then kind of like start to draw weird parallels uh, between those layers so that it feels like there are too many coincidences between these different layers that it kind of like starts to feel a little bit unreal. Like that can't have been a coincidence that it was like that. Or this kind of like, you know, we start mixing the different story layers. So there's kind of like the story of the alien civilization, what happened to them before you arrived. And there's what happened to Celine before she arrived on the planet and what is happening to Celine while she's on the planet. And there is kind of like this, we, we take all those layers and we just mash them together. So it starts to feel like everything is a little bit unreal, a little bit unreal, unre- kind of like dreamy. And you kind of like start to think about like, okay, why are these alien writings and tableaus, why are they kind of like having this imagery and wording that is very personal to Celine? So that can't be possible. And we start to undermine kind of like your confidence in the kind of like objectivity of any narrator in the game. So maybe the computer is analyzing the environment, but can you trust that the computer is telling you the kind of like, is objective reality even possible on this planet, which seems to be like breaking the laws of physics and, you know, infected with like cosmic horrors. Like we start to mix the layers together and undermine uh, the player's confidence that whatever they get told is actually real. So, it was kind of like interesting trying to take that kind of like, you know, there is maybe an objective timeline, but we never reveal it to the player or we muddy the water so much that it becomes impossible to tell what parts of it are true and what are just this kind of like weird dreamlike symbolism and mixing. And, you know, maybe the planet is picking up, you know, stuff from Celine's memories or maybe this this is also some kind of fever dream. Like we wanted to make sure that all of those uh, interpretations of the story were valid uh, and kind of like there would be enough, you know, you know, legs on any of those theories. So it was just kind of like taking like there were events and then you just like mix it up on as many layers as possible, drawing those impossible uh, parallels. So it all starts to feel a little bit unreal and a little bit impossible. But maybe it was still possible because we're dealing with forces beyond human understanding. And did Celine's character change at all as you were doing going through development? Like as you're putting on going through all these systems and negotiating what how much to tell players, how much not to tell players, and then even casting the actor and seeing how she performed the character, or was Celine pretty much the same from uh, beginning to end as how you pictured her? Yeah, I, I, I can I can jump in and once again curious for you, Evie, as well. It feels like um to me, like casting is such an important part and um Jane brought so much to the performance that kind of gave it like a whole new layer and a whole new perspective. So we did spend quite a bit of time casting and really trying to find the right voice and the right sort of style. Not that it kind of, we knew exactly what we wanted to say, but I think the moment that we involved Jane, it kind of provided a much stronger thing. And it's actually something that I usually ask, like thinking like, yeah, I think Jane could say this in a way that would work. Um, I think Celine as well was something that as Evie said, we have a very clear understanding of who she is, but we also we do play with the um, unreliability of the story. So 
at least for me, it felt like it was a fairly clear sort of um, understanding of who she was, but how clear it was revealed to the players is maybe what iterated quite a lot. We'd often say, oh, is this too much? Or hang on, this is too little. Is it too mysterious? Is it too unclear? So I feel like as a root, we knew exactly who Celine was. And then uh, we let Jane sort of embellish and bring layers to it that we may not have seen. But it was just this uh, tug of war between uh, how far to go and how how little to go. Um, yeah, Evie, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, if you're talking about Celine as a character, I think she's gone through remarkably little changes throughout the production. So when I was interviewing for this role in 2018, uh, I remember being pitched uh, the basic basic story uh, outline, and it's changed very little since then. I think she, she wasn't called Celine back then and um, as some other characters that may appear in the story also were a little bit uh, more undefined. But kind of like the core of her story uh, has changed very, very little, uh, which I was kind of like quite surprised when we got to the end of production. I was just reflecting back and I was like, it's actually pretty much the same thing that Harry told me uh, when I when I joined the team. So yeah, I've been really happy with that kind of like vision uh, surviving through it and kind of like how strong the vision was already uh, to begin with. And yeah, of course, we added kind of like more flesh on those bones, uh, but the basic structure of it has remained the same uh, throughout the years. Yeah, and I feel like working with Harry, it was more of a point that I just felt like it was a story I could really believe in, at least for me personally. It's important to have a story that's ambitious and bold and feels new, but also I think has like some strong strong messages and something to really tap into and i personally really tapped into it so for me the dynamics between harry as the creative director and myself as the narrative director was usually very aligned where i i could say i really think this is the right way to go and harry would be like of course it's the right way to go so there was this um reaffirmance and as evie said i think it was really great to have that from the get-go that we could just collaborate and trust each other and um i could be in the vo sessions working with jane and others and basically uh, Harry could listen to it later and just be like, this is great. This is exactly what I was considering as well. So um, I think it's really important to have that. And we were very fortunate all along. And I think that's why Returnal turned out to be such an original and um, uh, to me, like a special game, um, because it does have that foundation. Yeah, I, I do want to give props also to our writer, Luke Malding, uh, because kind of like uh, he wrote uh, like majority, I think actually all of all of kind of like Celine's uh, dialogue and all the house sequences and everything to do with kind of like Selene as a character and her past. And he just lent this beautiful kind of like prose-like voice to, especially the moments when Selene starts to go off the deep end. Uh, like there is this beautiful kind of like, you know, almost like lucid madness uh, to the kind of like voice that she has in those moments. And I think that that was one of those moments that really uh, defined Selene as someone with a kind of like her own unique voice among all these other different video game protagonists. So uh, just want to give him props for that. Yeah, agreed. Amazing work. So I want to make sure we get to these questions, but each episode we have our guests ask a question to our next episode's guests. And our last one, Bahia Khan asked, if you were writing or making a game in, or any sort of work about something painful or traumatic or just something really close to you, how do you make sure that when you write it, you don't re-traumatize yourself, which I think could apply to Returnal? Well, I can start this time. Um, I don't think there was much in Returnal that was like particularly traumatizing to me. Um, of course, there were a lot of dark, dark 
themes there uh, without spoiling anything. Uh, but I've always kind of like uh, viewed my writing process as kind of like cathartic. The more I write out something that is something uh, that I find myself getting uncomfortable about or is just kind of like, you know, just touching that dark side of my mind, I, I find it just kind of like a nice release to be able to pin it down on paper and maybe explore like how how it could have gone differently, how it could have gone better or worse. Uh, but of course, your mileage may vary in this. Like I, I have been very lucky in my life not to kind of like encounter uh, anything too traumatic. So I can understand that this might not be a process that works for every any everyone. But for me, kind of like writing is the process of working through that trauma. Yeah, I think it's a great question as well. Um, for me personally, I think the obviously the question is like, how how far do you go? I think it's really up to each person um, about how far they feel they want to share or how much what sort of stories they want to tell. Um, so I think it is a very personal thing. Um, but for me, I do like to put some of myself into my stories and try to give it a bit more soul and a bit more authenticity, which is really important to me with characters is like a sense of reality. So I'd say, yeah, it's, it's, it's up to you to decide how, which, how far you want to go down that path. But obviously if it turns into a negative experience, I'd say it's, it's probably not the right place, but working on Returnal as well for me, I felt, uh, comfortable and, um, yeah, also very mindful as well. But yeah, that'd be my answer to that one. Great question. Really good one. Sun M asked, how can you make a main character as likable as your side characters? Because side characters tend to be much more easy to pull people in with because you get such limited info and people will add to it. But main characters are really make or break. So how do you ensure that you've successfully made a main character worth playing through or listening or reading to or listening to or reading about? Yeah, I can jump into this one. At least for me, um, I don't really tend to distinguish characters when I think of them. I actually, I, I may be just like a neo-realist and I like really um, real stories, but I, I view Celine as a person. Um, she has her own flaws. She has her own drive. She has her own past. And same with other side characters with my own story that I wrote, uh, Stone. I don't see Stone as just a koala character. I see Stone as a koala human, a koala person with a real real story, a real background, and um, a real drive and um, real flaws. So for me, yeah, I'd, I'd say don't, don't distinguish them. Um, naturally, in a game environment, you don't want a character that's going to overrule um, in those senses. But I'd say in terms of likability, it's also a question. I, I personally don't feel all characters need to be likable. It's, it's better if they're real. Um, so I'd say, yeah, maybe try not to distinguish and try to make them as real as you feel they fit the story. Obviously, not all stories fit this mantra, but at least with Returnal and the stories I like to tell, I like authenticity and I like, um, yeah, real characters. Evie, what are your thoughts? Yep. Yeah, kind of like uh, jumping off on that point. I think, yeah, the question setting kind of like contains this trap, like if you want to make your main character likable and that usually in video game terms, uh, kind of like often translates to becoming this kind of like bland every man every woman type of character because they need to kind of like either fit uh, whatever choice player makes and need to be this kind of like blank slate or that they need to be someone who can kind of like entice the mainstream audience or, or something along those lines so we kind of like use maybe a Hollywood template for the main character and I think you know video games are such a great way of exploring 
different identities, fantastic settings, and just kind of like really being there, really empathizing, really understanding this viewpoint. So I think we should be, I think, bolder in creating less likable uh, characters. And yeah, as Greg said, maybe more authentic instead of that. So yeah, um, if of course, if you're stuck in that kind of like, you know, role-playing type of genre where a player gets to make their characters' choices for them, of course, you're kind of like maybe stuck with this uh, more blank character. And then the side characters get to be their own voices without having to worry about uh, fitting uh, the player's expectations. But, you know, maybe maybe we need to explore uh, more stories where the main character is already set and they have their own voice no matter what the player does. And we try to craft a story around that character and experience the world through their eyes. Yeah, that sounds good to me. And then what's a storytelling related question that you would like our next guests to answer? Uh, I, can, I can go first. So uh, I'd like them to answer uh, a question about world building. So do they have like a pet peeve when it comes to world building? Like what do they always want to avoid? And is there some kind of like signature thing that they always want to include in the worlds and stories that they craft? Good question. Nice. All right. Uh, so my question for the next guest would be, what type of story that's not often seen in games would you love to write or create? So not just the usual type of game stories, but what would you like to create if you could? Obviously, with independent games, you can really go quite wild, but I am still would love to hear that aspect because I feel like there's so many stories we can tell in games and um, would love to see more and more types. And I'm going to turn those questions back on both of you. I want to hear both your answers. <laughs> All right. So Gregory, would you want to answer yours first? All right. So yeah. world building, right? Um, mm -hmm. Do I have to answer my own question as well? I'd like to. If you have okay, time. sure. Yeah, I can, I can give it a spin. So for Evie's world building question, I think a pet peeve is, um, I think the lack of consideration of a world is more than just the environment. It's the UI. It's every aspect of the game. So... For example, with Returnal, uh, if you've played it, you know that our UI is a risk computer. Everything's built in. It's an immersive experience. We also intentionally don't even have a main menu. The game just starts and stops when you start and stop. So I feel like storytelling is more and world building is more than just the environment and the world the characters are in. So to me, if your UIs, if your sounds, if anything is kind of um, counter to that world, it's a place where you can do better. And that's a a pet peeve for me and i think a signature uh would probably be um yeah just the consistency of ideally world building i like to think that if you um if you play a game that i've been involved in i'm really mindful of it, and i'm trying to help the teams i work with to create like a consistent sense of storytelling where every aspect of the game fuels the story rather than just the story in the game or the world in the game um Abby, do you want to answer your world building question yeah yeah uh, so my pet peeve is, well, it's directly born from my uh, background as a former translation student. Like, I so much hate it when every, every kind of like sci-fi trope makes it seem like you can universally just translate everything, even from the tiniest language sample. And I'm like, that's that's not how it works. Like, you're missing the cultural context. Like, there might be concepts there that you don't even have words for because your biology your mind your psychology works completely differently and that's why i was kind of like very inspired to do the xenoglyphs the alien writing in returnal in a way that was maybe a little bit more uh, aligned with the kind of like unreliability and 
how you have to make interpretations based on your own understanding and your own worldview. You're kind of like, translation is always subjective and you just can't understand like how this completely different alien race uh, would kind of like construct their writing, would construct their thinking just because you picked up a couple of you know, words here and there, and suddenly you're kind of like, you know, Russian level five, and now you can completely read this text absolutely clearly. It comes out like, you know, in perfect English, and there's no kind of like consideration like, this word might me- me- mean that, but in this context, it probably means this. So I'm, I'm, I'm very peeved when it comes to kind of like, you know, these utopian translation devices and levels, uh, especially in kind of like terms of, you just need to collect enough language experience points, and then, then you're perfect. Uh, so yeah, I, I I rant about this very easily, <laughs> as you can tell. That's a good uh, answer. Yeah, and I think uh, well, my uh, signature. Uh, I I think this actually I failed to make it all the way to Returnal, but I think it started as a little bit of an inside joke in uh, Control. Like I I originated the idea of the rubber duck uh, in there uh, because I basically I, I just based it on the meme of like you should never pick up a duck in a dungeon which is from the Munchkin card game slash um, like just a general warning to a certain type of role players who are kind of like, you know, playing against maybe a hostile GM who's kind of like wanting to put traps and kind of like, you know, like trick their players. So it's kind of like, you know, you should never pick up a duck in a dungeon. And if there's a rubber duck in the oldest house, you should definitely not pick it up. Like there's something very wrong with that. So (laughs) I wanted to put a rubber duck uh, in Returnal in a very kind of like... um, specific place but i think the asset got cut um maybe i could sneak it in someday still but yeah rubber ducks would be my signature and do you have an answer to gregory's question gregory's question uh, what was it again greg what type of story would you like to see that's not often seen in games you want to answer this first greg yeah, while I'm thinking? I, I can do it so yeah i've been really fortunate that as as mentioned i also kind of tell my own stories on the side outside of um working for housemark so the first story I told was I, I really felt there should be more <laughs> unlikable real characters, kind of some stuff that I said. So I created Stone, which is basically a stone noir. So inspired by my love of like novels by like Charles Bukowski and Thomas Pynchon. So basically wanted to create that sort of experience of having this character that for every reason you should not like them, but by the end you understand them. So that was one thing. And now with my next game that I'm writing on the side, uh, Burn, you basically follow a Finnish pop star, and it's a lot more sort of uh, documentary, almost kind of about the fascination with pop, I- pop artists and artists themselves and how far do you go for your art and what happens if you go too far and what happens in every aspect. So for me, I kind of feel like I'm preaching what I'm asking. I'm trying to create new type of stories for players to discover, sort of inspired by maybe... Um, a bit more unconventional in different type of ways. I feel like we also did that with Returnal. We wanted to create something special and not just do another sort of sci-fi story. So I hope that came across there as well. Evie, it's your turn. Okay. Um, well, this has been explored somewhat in the recent years, but I think there's so much more ground to break, uh, which is kind of like, you know, games that focus on relationship like just a relationship between two people it doesn't even have to be romantic but just kind of like really digging into like how we build and navigate a relationship with another person like i think good examples of this is florence the game which actually brooke mags worked on and firewatch uh so both of those kind of like really 
I think, use mechanics to explore how how it feels like uh, to build a relationship with someone and then maybe see it fall apart. But I think we could just go so much deeper into that territory. And I'd really love to see more more games try to kind of like build more realistic depictions of relationships and not just kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stick gift points into this NPC until they give me like, you know, the you know best ending. Uh, so kind of like more, more deep mechanics when it comes to relationships and relationships just as the central theme of the game. I would love to see that. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a good note to end it on. Um, so where can people find both of you on the internet? So you can find me on Twitter uh, with the nickname Ciliet, so S-I-L-L-I-E-T. Yep, and you can find me at Gregory Loudon on Twitter. I usually put all of my sort of more work-related stuff there. So uh, yeah, find me there and um, hope you enjoy the ride. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at ScriptLockCast. And and our music was done by Isabella Ness and our logo was done by Lily Nishida. And I think that's our show. Is it, Max? I think so. Cool. So... Thank you both for coming on. This is so amazing. Oh, cool. Oh, glad you liked <laughs> Thanks it. Thanks for having us. This was this was so fun. Mm-hmm.